If you have your Bibles with you, uh, open them to the Gospel of Luke and to chapter 7. We're going to be in verse 36 to begin with very shortly. Uh, for those of you who are members of the Rock, Rocksters, we like to call ourselves, we, uh, we, we left this book back in mid-July. We began last December, the uh, first week, and by mid-July, we were in chapter 7, verse 35. Slow going. It's been awesome what we've seen in the Gospel of Luke. And that, that's the pattern of the early church, by the way. Letters were written, Gospels were written, the church would get them and they go, they would devour them and they would go through them as a church. I read this summer as I was continuing to study in the Gospel of Luke and reading various commentaries that one well-known pastor, uh, uh, a man that I quite admire, he took 10 years to preach through the Gospel of Luke. We probably won't take that long. I don't have nearly as much to say as he does. From 1998 to 2008, his church went through the Gospel of Luke. Yeah, they took a few breaks for Christmas and a few things like that, but generally they went through the whole Gospel. Now, some of you are probably going, wow, really? I mean, sh shouldn't we take breaks once in a while and, and talk about my felt needs or, or particular issues that, uh, that I'm really worrying about or struggling with right now? <laughs> yeah, maybe occasionally. But going through things like this, and I hope you'll see today, this is all about making Jesus known. It's all about knowing who He is and what He has done for us. Amen? He, he's the hero of the story here, not us. It's not about us. It's not about me. It's about Him. So let me give you a little bit of a recap of where we're at. You'll remember Luke's opening words at the beginning of this gospel. So those of you who weren't with us last December through J July 15th, just a little bit of a recap. At the very, very beginning, in the first four verses, Luke actually tells us, he writes and says, okay, this is whom I'm dedicating this letter, this book to, and he gives us his purpose. He said this in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. It seemed to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Now, Theophilus was actually a really good friend of his. He was, um, but we're not sure exactly of what nature. Most importantly, he was a friend. Luke was also a Greek pagan who had come to faith in Jesus. He was not Jewish. He did not live during the time that Jesus lived. He didn't meet Jesus. Well, he may have been alive, but he never met Jesus. He actually came to faith in Christ through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And so it's interesting. He's writing to another Greek pagan friend, a skeptic, in fact. One of our subtitles for this series is The Skeptic's Gospel his friend Theophilus. And so he's writing and he's got these goals. And first of all, he's saying, I'm writing to you an orderly account. And that tells us he's got a specific goal in mind. And he's going to use various details of the life of Jesus so that he can achieve one specific goal in Theophilus's life. And I would suggest to you and I here today for you and me as well. And that is something that in our world today, most people kind of like, there's no such thing as that. Certainty. He wanted Theophilus to completely have certainty and faith and trust in everything that he'd learned about Jesus. Do you think we need that today? 2,000 years out? I think so. It's an amazing gospel. So Luke is a, a physician. We learned this about him. He's, he's a historian. I like to call him a factician. Yes, I know it's not in the dictionary. I made that up. And also a theologian. Amazing guy. He himself, as I said, never met Jesus, but he, he cobbled together this longest book in the New Testament, by the way. 
It's the longest book in the New Testament. His second book, the book of Acts, is the second longest. So he's a prolific writer, a journalist of sorts. He cobbled this together by interviewing eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses like the mother of Jesus, Mary, and all the apostles and others who were alive and had met Jesus and had seen all of the amazing things that he did. And so he begins his gospel with the miraculous birth narrative uh, and, and the angelic presence and announcements of both the birth of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, and then also of Jesus himself. But then he, he quickly fast-forwards to when Jesus is 30 years of age, a mature, mature man, and, and when he begins his public ministry, he's then tempted in the wilderness by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights, and then he comes forward from the wilderness declaring why he is here, and he says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so we learned that Luke is presenting Jesus as, first of all, not only the Son of God, but as a preacher who has a message, and it's the proclamation of the kingdom of God. And so he's baptized by John the Baptist, which leads to his calling of his first disciples and the beginning of his ministry. I mean, from the very outset, though, Luke very carefully and detail-wise, he exposes to us the truth of the prevailing views about who Jesus is. It's remarkable about the Christian writings and gospel, right? No other sacred literature in the world ever talks about any of its followers, of the deity's followers, having any doubts or questions about their God. Luke lays it out for what it really was. So there was, of course, a group of early followers, a very, very few in number, who literally believed and hoped that he was the awaited one, the Messiah, the Son of God who would come and save them and save the world. He was also followed by those we saw, Luke put this out to us, by those who were attracted to him as a result of all of his, all of his miraculous healings. I mean, go figure. If there was someone in town today who could heal every disease, cancer, whatever it might be, 100% of the time, not the fake guys on late night TV, okay, but someone who could really do it, do you think they would be popular? Do you think a lot of people would be out there following? But what Luke revealed to us was these crowds come to Jesus. They come to him for his miraculous healings. He's a great preacher. And, and, and also for the feeding of the 5,000 and free sushi and on and on it goes, right? They came out for all that. But we learned that Jesus wasn't so much into crowds because they didn't stick around. When all the goodies, the things that were for them stopped, they were like, well, yeah, okay, that's, I guess that's it. Yeah, repent, salvation, not so much, not for me. Luke makes that very clear. And so finally, of course, he began to attract the attention of the religious leaders, right? The religious leaders who saw these crowds that were following him, the, the proclamations about him possibly being the Son of God, and they were threatened by him. So they were following him as well. Now, a key point, of course, you'll remember, happened in chapter 4 when Jesus... He's been preaching and teaching and in synagogues and healing. And word gets home to his home synagogue, right, where he was raised in Nazareth. And they're like, let's bring home the, the hometown boy. We're proud of him now. And they do. And they bring him home. And at first he preaches this message. He opens up the scroll from Isaiah, which they gave to him, and he declares this, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolls up the scroll, 
hands it back to the man who gave it to him and says, today, this reading has been fulfilled in your presence. (laughs) You remember what happened, right? I mean, they went from thinking, he's so eloquent, he's a hometown boy, we love him, to wait a second. He's declaring to be God. He, he is saying in these words, I, I have come to set you free. You're the captives. You're the ones in bondage to sin. I have come for you. And what do they do? Well, they run him out to the edge of the city wanting to kill him and throw him off the hill, right? Another miracle occurs. He escapes. And they don't know how. It's from that point on until we were le- where we left off in mid-July, Jesus' fame continues to grow. It continues to grow, to spread, and one thing becomes abundantly clear. Jesus seemed to be gathering a large following of what people in that day, the religious people, would have called and deemed the lowest of the low, right? The outcasts, the sinners, the unclean, tax collectors, poor people, women of the streets. He was getting a reputation for that. And so Jesus, he's at the point really where it's, we saw this at the end of uh, the passage we looked at last July. He's really raising now the ire of the religious people. And they're really tracking him down. They want to trip him up. They, they want to make everybody see him for the false prophet, for the, the, the charlatan that he is. Jesus hasn't had enough with them. And the words that we read just before our passage for today that Jesus gave were these. He says to these religious men and women, For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, he's got a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. So what Jesus is doing here is he's pointing to them and to their sheer and utter hypocrisy. They wouldn't have the John the Baptist at all. And why was that? Well, I mean, the, the, the crazy thing is that they wouldn't have John the Baptist who came living the ascetic and, and outwardly religious and holy life that they claimed to be living. Why would they not have John the Baptist? Because he was actually living it. He was actually living the life that they outwardly wanted to be seen to be living, but weren't. And they wouldn't have Jesus either because he came to seek and save the least, the last, and the lost, right? That's who he came to see. He he, he kept going to the unclean and eating meals with them and, yes, enjoying a glass of wine from occasion with them. Why, Why didn't they accept Jesus is the question? Well, Luke, now in his orderly account, wants to show us that today. And guess what? You're not going to believe it. The story takes place at a meal. Meals with Jesus and sinners is our sermon title for today. Let's read the passage. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. If you have a Bible, open it up. If you have a phone or a tablet, open it up. Read along with me. Bring something like that each week. Let's read. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold... A woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, hmm, weeping, 
She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this and said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will you love more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he is for, who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray again. Father, Father, thank you so much for this record of these words of Christ, of Jesus, of this meal, this story, true story that Luke has recorded. Oh, what it must have meant to the early church. Oh, what it must mean to us today. Holy Spirit, I pray. I pray that you would speak to us through this passage today, through my meager words and insight that you've given to us today. I pray this in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. Amen. One of uh, Luke's favorite narrative styles is to kind of uh, almost like write things as if they're a play, like scenes in a play with characters. So I want to highlight that a little bit for you today as we get started. We're just going to go through the story one more time and look at some of the details before we get to our key application for today. He uses uh, this device, and I'm going to start with scene one, which is the first verse, verse 36. And we see that Jesus has been invited to dinner. We're introduced to one of the main characters, who is Simon the Pharisee, and they're enjoying a meal. And that first verse again is this. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. So there's very little detail here, right? I mean, it opens up and that's it. One verse, scene one, that's the details. And I believe it's very intentional on Luke's part. He doesn't want to get off track, and so I, as the preacher, am not going to try to get off track too much here on that either today. But, but really, it, we're not told anything about like, what the table conversation was about, what Simon's purpose was for inviting Jesus to this meal, what was on the menu, you know, what vintages of wine they were enjoying. Nothing. No details whatsoever. Just this. Simon invited him. Jesus shows up immediately goes to the table and reclines. End of scene one. Scene two, and behold, 
a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. So from stage right, this woman appears. And Luke, in the Greek, uses the word behold, which literally is an exclamation, which would be something like, look at that. (laughs) So in other words, we need to be looking at that and have our attention on that. But that's what was taking place, obviously, in that room. We're given a few clues about this woman's character, aren't we, in this verse? In the beginning, we are told that she is a woman of the city, of the streets, pretty easy to tell, and in those days, those words of the city, of the streets, were very clear. She was likely a prostitute. And then, of course, it leads logically to the fact that she was a sinner. I want you to hold on to that word and remember that word, was. I think Luke is very intentional with that word. So the truth is, the truth is, again, when we look at these verses, what we see on screen here, She knew full well who Jesus was before walking into this room. I mean, we read it here that when she, look, learned or heard that Jesus was having dinner with Simon the Pharisee, she gathers her very expensive, far more expensive ointment than the oil that Simon should have anointed Jesus' head with, and she takes that to this dinner party, and she crashes it. So we we must, I want you to see the intentionality behind her actions. She must have already have known who Jesus is, amen? She's already known him. She's already heard from him. We'll see more. So the question then must be, how did she even get into this man's house, let alone into the very presence of Jesus, right? I mean, how did she just get in? I mean, did you knock on the door? Well, no. Homes uh, of respected and often well-to-do leaders and officials at that time were typically designed in in this way. I mean, they had an open courtyard where there would be a beautiful dinner table, uh, beautifully set out, but it was an open courtyard. And most of the homes in those days uh, didn't have windows like we need here in Squamish when summer is over, amen? Did it just end? Why is it Labor Day? It just seems to end. It's cool out there. But they didn't have that. I mean, we're talking Israel. And so the windows were open. And, and this particular courtyard-type setting was, was set up in a specific way. This dinner setting encouraged those who were poor and, 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 and not the privileged in society to be able to actually walk in, even stand behind the table and look at all the privileged and well-respected people, high and mighty people, talk about, you know, public policy and about religion, and, and, uh, but just listen, not participate in what is actually going on in these homes. So this woman would then have had naturally the same access as anyone else into that home. But what she did, obviously, was very unnatural in that setting. So the dinner desks, we read, were reclining at table. And again, most of you know this, I would think, and if those of you who don't, that's okay. I mean, the way they ate in those days, have you ever tried it? It's kind of uncomfortable. I mean, I, I like tatami rooms and sushi bars where you sit, but even then, my legs are like, I don't know what to do with my leg. It's, 
I like a chair, right? In those days, the table would be set. It was very low to the floor, and they would recline on an elbow, right or left elbow, typically the left elbow, and all of their feet, so they weren't hitting each other's feet, right? And, and they, their feet would be out to the back. I mean, the idea was when you came into a, a, a person's home and they were inviting you for dinner, your feet would be washed because even if you had sandals on, it's dusty, it's dirty, and your feet would be washed. It was just customary. It was a polite thing to do. But even when your feet were washed... The idea is they need to be far from food because they're still, still unclean. And so that was the reason why it was set up this way. Well, then she arrives and immediately, immediately, she heads for the feet of Jesus. And what we read and should see, believe me, read this with me, and what we should see is this. She's a mess. I got to believe, and it doesn't say this, but I got to believe she's weeping before she gets there. But the scene that we see is that from the moment she arrives, she's weeping, so much so that even when she's standing up, before she gets on her knees, her, her, her tears are soaking Jesus' feet. And, and trust me when I say this, I mean, it's only obvious. People who, who are sobbing like that, they don't do that in silence, do they? You, we, they must have heard her sobbing. They must have heard her sobbing. And so she's, she's there. Her te- tears provide the perfect means for washing his feet. But there's a problem. She doesn't have a towel, which, again, the, the host should have had to wash Jesus' feet as he would have for all of his other guests. She has no towel. So what does she do? The unthinkable. She lets down her hair. And she washes Jesus' feet, dries them with her hair. It's unthinkable. The men at that table, and listen, there were only men at that table. Women, if they were invited into that room at all, would have been servants, right? They're looking at this and they're going, what's going on here? A woman should never let her hair down in public. Only in the presence of her husband should she do this. So what she's doing is outrageous. But then she starts kissing his washed feet. And the impression is, she just doesn't stop. She just won't stop kissing the Lord's feet. Scene three. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, within himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon answered, say it, teacher. Now, what Luke is doing here, I believe, is he's presenting us with Simon's perspective, isn't he? Not not just Simon's perspective, but every other man at that table. And the question is, well, what does Simon see? And, And clearly from the text, from the story, what we see recorded here is that Simon basically sees just two things, Jesus and this woman. And I, I got to think that the emphasis is 70-25, right? 30. 70 on the woman, 30 on Jesus until this point. Now he's looking at him and he's like, if this man were a prophet. And so his eyes are fixed on Jesus. He's already decided what type of woman she is, hasn't he? I mean, just look at her. But it's how he sees Jesus or doesn't see Jesus 
that I want to suggest to you is really the heart of the story here. His thoughts tell us exactly what he thought of the woman. His thoughts about Jesus reveal even more. If he were a prophet, I mean, he's not the only one, as I said, asking this question, and I think it gives us a clue to why Jesus was even invited to this dinner, right? The the whole deal all the time with these religious types up until this time is they just want to trip him up. They want to prove to the people who love him, especially the plebs, right, the tax collectors and the sinners, the unclean, the unwashed, the unholy that they see them as anyway, they want to show Jesus out to be this false prophet. They want to trip him up. And so that's a clue as to why he's even there. They're always testing Jesus. So they're thinking this. If, if he were truly a prophet of God, he should react the same way that we would. I mean, the moment that she touched his feet, he should have recoiled. And then he should have looked at her exactly the way we're looking at her. And then he should have probably cast her away and told her to leave and to stop doing that or called an attendant to take her away. Seems to be their attitude. Well, Jesus knows Simon's thoughts, doesn't he? Simon hadn't uttered this. This was going on in his head. And we've seen this repeatedly through the gospel so far. Jesus, God, Knowing people's thoughts, has that ever concerned you? (laughs) Concerns me from time to time. He knows their very thoughts. And so we get to see what Jesus has been seeing at this point in the story, which, trust me, is not good for Simon. And he now has a lesson for Simon where he says this. Simon, a certain money, money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. Sarcasm intended. And he said to him, you've judged rightly, Simon. You passed the test. So, obviously, Jesus employs the simplest of illustrations that is intended to teach Simon something. Now, remember, Jesus said, I have something to say to you. So, it really wasn't about a test or a question. He's like, Simon, I've got a lesson for you. Are you going to get it? Are you going to get this lesson? Simon thinks it's a test, however, and his words, I suppose indicate, frankly, I think he's a bit ticked off that Jesus would, in front of all of his learned guests, use such a simple, silly illustration where everybody knows the answer. I mean, couldn't you ask me something about, you know, the Torah, the Old Testament, something really tricky, like Leviticus? Jesus is trying to teach him something. So having told Simon that he got the answer right, Jesus then tells him what he had to say to him and to you and to me. When he said this, this is what Jesus sees. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, yes, they are many. 
but they're forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, less than Simon, loves little. So I love the way Luke unfolds the story, don't you? He, he, you get the idea that Jesus never turned to look at this woman throughout the whole first and second and third scenes, don't you? I mean, you get the impression he, he was, his eyes were only focused on Simon and the other men at this table, primarily Simon, and he never once turned and looked at this woman. I love that, don't you? I mean, I mean, think about it. What would have happened if he did? What would have happened if he flinched and pulled his foot away just slightly? I mean, he, did he know who she was? He knew Simon's thoughts. We don't know. But imagine if he had flinched and pulled his feet away and had done anything. I mean, she already saw the ugly looks, the disdainful looks of these men who were at the table. She didn't need to hear their thoughts. She could see it on their faces. If Jesus had responded in any way, shape, or form, wouldn't she have just got up and run away? I think some of us might feel that way sometimes today when we are being convicted by the Holy Spirit of our sin, ourselves. We think someone else is judging us or the preacher in the way, that, or whatever, or, or just conviction is coming to our hearts and we're coming close to Christ and, and we're being convicted of our sin and yet what do we do? Rather than seeing that he has eyes of love for us, we run, we skitter away. But Jesus didn't do that. He didn't do that at all. So we get the picture that Jesus has his eyes firmly on Simon, on his host, and maybe others, but mostly on Simon. And let's see this. He's not being unkind to Simon, is he? I mean, some people think he's got this, this thing in. He's got the, this, it in for the Pharisees and the religious types because they've got it in for him. No. He loves Simon and the legalist and the Pharisee too. Amen? He's pleading with Simon. Simon, repent. You're just as much a sinner as she is, but you can't see it. You can't see it. So he's not being unkind to Simon. He loves him too and wants him to repent and be forgiven just like this woman has been. So look at what he says as he turns and tells Simon what he sees about this woman and that Simon and the others did not see. It's beautiful. It's clear that, the other, that, that his intent is this. Why else would he ask this to Simon? Do you see her, Simon? I mean, in, in his mind, Simon was thinking if, the, this, if this man knew who she was, if he was truly a prophet, he would know. And so Jesus is countering that and saying, Simon, just a second, do you see her? Let me ask it another way, Simon. Do you see who she is now? Clearly he didn't. So Jesus reveals to Simon, to everyone at the table, as if they all didn't already know, just how inhospitable Simon had been to Jesus. He's an honored guest, one would think. But all of the guests would have known. I mean, they arrived. They, they would have had their feet washed. They would have been kissed by Simon on the left or the right cheek, probably the left. And, and they would have had their heads anointed with oil. And then Jesus shows up and he's already at table and ignores him. He says to him, Simon, you gave me no water 
for my feet, but this woman? She did with her tears and wiped them with her feet. You refused me even a welcoming kiss. She started kissing my feet the moment I reclined at your table and didn't stop. You didn't even anoint my head with oil, but she did with ointment. Simon, do you not understand the significance of that? Oh, Pharisee, religious leader? Then Jesus ties, look, he ties her her actions to the question he'd asked Simon, who will love more? Yes, the one who has been forgiven much, Simon. She's the 500 denarii sinner. Simon, we all agree on that, right? But listen, Simon, you are the 50 denarii, wait for it, sinner. How do you think that lesson landed in that room? <laughs> Come on, just think about it, okay? I don't know where we're trying to go back 2,000 years, put ourselves into a room we don't understand, right, with these religious guys with big hats, right? They're there. They're very self-righteous, right? Very hypocritical, but they're there, and they're listening to this. I'm sure there were some of the men in the room who were like, hey, Simon, tell this guy off. Who does he think he is speaking to you, trying to teach you a lesson like that? Clearly, he's a false prophet. But just maybe... There were some men in that room, one would hope, who were feeling a little bit embarrassed for Simon. Maybe just a bit? Some serious tension in that room, I'm thinking. But here's the wonderful thing. The tables have been amazingly turned, haven't they? I mean, the truth is, the host who should have greeted his guest with honor and respect is outdone by an uninvited an uncultured guest. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. It's a beautiful picture. And so then we get to see the typical self-righteous religious response in the closing verses, verses 48 to 50, where Jesus again says to the woman, and he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And to that, he says again to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the response of the the legalistic, typical, self-righteous religious person. Who does he think he is forgiving sins? Only God can do that. Guys, (laughs) have you missed it that badly so far? Obviously, he's God in the flesh. And, of course, he could do that. So let's be very clear about the gospel here. Very clear at this point about the gospel here. Jesus didn't forgive this woman. We know this, right? And if not, this is an important lesson. Jesus didn't forgive this woman because of her actions on that day in that place, right? He he didn't forgive her because of that at that moment. He was simply stating what had already occurred in her life. She had come to know the depth of her sin, that Jesus loved her and had called her and everyone who would hear him to repent. She'd heard his messages. He'd been preaching for two years solid at this point. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. There's a narrow gate, a wide road. Enter in the narrow gate. Repent. She had. She had. And so she had repented and she turned from this. She was no longer a sinner, but now a new creation, a saint in Christ. Simon? Well, we'll see. We'll see. 
We don't really get an answer, but we'll see in our conclusion a few things. But Luke adds a little addendum, which I hadn't read already today. I'm going to throw it in for you because it's one of these addendums. It's in chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. And it's kind of like it doesn't fit with what happens after that, which we'll see next week. But it does with this. And let me just read it to you and give you a couple of quick comments before we conclude. Luke then goes on to record this in chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. Soon afterwards, after these events in this dinner party, He, Jesus, went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve, the apostles, were with him. And also, look at this, some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. We don't have time today, but yeah. Evil forces, demons exist. Of course, in our non-metaphysical world, in our skeptical, atheistic, materialistic world that doesn't even want to believe in a creator God, the idea that there are demons that could possibly be working in people's lives and causing people to do horrendous and horrible things to others, but also in their own lives. Well, Jesus healed Mary of seven demons. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, could have been named Harold as well, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. So, so Luke adds these three verses afterwards, and I think they're significant, aren't they? It's significant because Jesus was a very unusual rabbi on that day. No rabbi had women disciples, women disciples. Jesus did. And after what we've seen happen with this woman who's unnamed in this wonderful and beautiful story, is it any wonder that women loved him and followed him then and to this day? Is it any wonder? Please say amen. No. Obviously. Why? Because Jesus loved them. And not just those who were those type of women, women of the streets, but all women who who weren't even allowed to be at the dinner table with other men. Jesus changed the paradigm. He made it clear to every woman in that day and today that you are equal in value and worth with men. Go figure. That's who Jesus is. Just one really quick aside on that. You'll notice that in here it says that they were with the apostles and with Jesus and they provided for them out of their means. Do you see that? That means financially, and, and it's also from different social strata here. You've got the wife of Herod's household manager. So you've got some poor people, you've got some rich people, you've got some previously demon-possessed women, right? And what are they doing? They're providing financially for those who are following Jesus and leading in his early church. Friends, I've got to tell you that, uh, guys, this is a word for you. Men are mostly tight-fisted with their money, not women. A few years ago, I was working at Union Gospel Mission, 15, 20 years ago, actually, helping them with their fundraising. And my first day on the job was the day after, a few days after, a major appeal letter had gone out asking for money to support the Union Gospel Mission so they could feed the homeless and help their drug and alcohol recovery program. I started going through the checks with everybody else when they were coming in. It was back in the day, it was no online giving, right? And all the rest was all checks. And I was like, I couldn't believe it. 70% of the people writing in and sending money to the United States, pardon me, to Union Gospel Mission, the United States could probably use it too. Women, $20 checks, $25 checks, $30 checks. Months later, I'd go speak at churches on behalf of the Union Gospel Mission, and I'd find out that many of these women were widows or retired, giving out of their poverty, really, to support the work of ministry of the church. Friends, I also got to tell you, my experience in church is this. 
It's the women who would like to encourage their husbands to give, (laughs) that their families be a tithing family. Just a little aside for you. So in conclusion this morning, I'd like to show you a remarkable contrast. Two things between Jesus and religious Pharisees for this day. And when I use that word Pharisees today, it's a term we use today to denote a self-righteous hypocrite. Number one, Jesus loves sinners. That's pretty clear, isn't it? He loves all sinners. He loves them all. He offered his love and forgiveness to everyone present at this meal, to the 500 denarii as well as the 50 denarii sinners. And the thing is the same today. It's true today. Those who are forgiven much love much. And those who are like, well, you know what? Jesus really didn't have to die that much for me because my sins are just, just a couple, right? Like, I think I can make it over the bar by myself, you know, and, uh, you know, I'm not such a bad person, I, you know. Jesus loves them both and offers his free gift of salvation and forgiveness to all. But the thing is this, and this is hard. Religious people hate sinners. It sounds harsh, but it's sadly true. We see it in Simon in the story today. He missed the big picture, didn't he? Which was that he thought his little 50 denarii sin was, in God's eyes, nothing to worry about compared to that woman's 500 denarii sins. He felt he was okay. His self-righteous and hypocritical attitude led him to believe that he was better or more worthy of God's acceptance and approval than this woman. He not only looked down on her, but quite frankly, he hated her. She was beneath him. She would never be welcomed into his home or into God's home, he thought. Quite the opposite. That is, friends, what spiritual pride will do. So let me leave you with this today. As we celebrate communion, which is what we're going to do next, let's remember that Jesus welcomes all sinners to this meal with him and with his church, the body of Christ. So if today, if you are or were a 500 denarii sinner, or if you have been a 50 denarii Pharisee, repent. Place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ today and come and enjoy this meal with Jesus. Pray with me, would you?